How amazing is it to sit around a campfire, watching those beautiful flickering flames, listening to the gorgeous crackle of firewood? It's mesmerising. Humans are innately fascinated by fire, but our relationship with fire is complex. Sometimes fire fascination turns into something more dangerous. Sometimes humans intentionally set fires. And guess what? We think so do some animals. It's episode 18 of Sister Doctor Squared and it's all about fire starting. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Alina. Hello, Squares. It's Janine here. We are crossing off another one of the topics from our mega list. And we did mention this one in our Muck Update episode. Yes, we keep our promises. Firstly, we would like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Jagera people as the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording this episode. We are coming to you from Mianjin country. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. So, Alina, can you tell everyone why we have chosen this topic? I believe this episode was inspired by my partner, Mel, aka Sister Dr. Squared Creative Director. That's right. Mel loves fire in Mm. controlled settings, of course. Mm -hmm. She loves a fireplace. She loves a campfire. Fireworks was a firefighter in a previous professional life and now works for our state fire and emergency services doing bushfire hazard mapping. So actually come to think of it, Mel just loves heat in general. (laughs) (laughs) Summer, saunas, midday sun. Outback trips. Yes. She once said to me that Brisbane is the coldest place she could ever live, which Mm. is really saying something because as far as planet Earth goes, you wouldn't exactly say that Brisbane is a cold place. No, Brisbane is the <laughs> subtropics. It does get <laughs> slightly cool in winter. I yeah. struggle. As a true Queenslander, I struggle. But no, it is not a cold place, really, no. in the grand scheme of things. That's right. So <laughs> if we ever move, it has to be closer to the equator, which rules out <laughs> most of several continents. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so yes, humans' relationship with fire is really fascinating, as Mel drew my attention to. And one of the things we really want to get into is why do humans sometimes set fires deliberately? So I'm Mm. going to get into a little bit of that, but it's not just humans. As I teased at the start, Janine is getting into intentional fire setting among animals and it's birds. I cannot wait to hear about this. It's so interesting. Let's get into it. I'm going to go first and tell you about a study that's looking at fire setting in humans, of course. My original background is psychology, so this is really interesting to me. Now, the study I read was published in 2021 in the journal Child Psychiatry and Human Development, and it's led by Aya Ilithi with colleagues in Toronto, Canada. This is where the study was done. So a lot of research on fire setting has been done with older youth who are already incarcerated. So what makes this study different is that it looks at fire setting in very young children who are still living in the community. And doing this really makes sense. If this is the age where fire setting behaviour starts, then you probably want to understand more about what's going on here, as well as maybe aim some prevention strategies at this younger age group. So, as they say in the paper, humans are drawn to fire. Janine, 
really? How good is sitting around a campfire? Oh, yeah. I mean, sitting around a fire, it's just so conducive to storytelling, sharing, connecting. It's pretty special. Yeah, it is. I did this recently on a weekend away with my gal pal besties and you can just stare at those flames for hours. It's so good. Yeah. It's almost like a meditation, isn't it? Yeah. It's beautiful and relaxing. Exactly. So so humans for a very long time have needed fire for warmth, cooking, and to mm. ward off predators. So really, mm-hmm. fire has played a huge role in our history and in our success as a species. For sure. Is it any wonder that we're drawn to it? Now, young children too are attracted to fire. This is natural to mm. a degree, but of course it can be problematic in some instances. And this paper quotes that most fires in the home are started by children under the age of six. Really? Most? That's interesting. Yes. So the participants in this study were 57 caregivers of children who set fires. All but two of the children were boys and the children were aged from two to six years And they had been referred to an arson prevention program for children. So this is how they came to be involved in the study. And the study was actually done between 1991 and 2010, although it was published in 2021, as I said. So the study itself is a little bit old. The caregivers were interviewed about their child's development, mental health and family background. They were also interviewed about their child's involvement with FIRE and the caregivers did a questionnaire that assessed their child for emotional and behavioural problems. So there really is a lot of information in this paper. We can't go through it all, but I'm just going to pull out some of the interesting findings. So what they found was that the average age that these kids started setting fires was four. Most of them used matches or lighters as the ignition source, and on average they had set eight fires. Each. Really? Wow. Yeah. Hang on. So that's the average, average of eight. So did they give a range? Like, was that still pretty yes. high? Yes. It ranged from one to 60 fires. <gasps> wow. So I know. at least one child had set 60 fires by the well, time, yeah. was it one, age six? Yes. Wow. Okay. At least one child had hence, set 60 fires. The re- Hence the referral to the arson prevention program. That's right. Okay, that's it's the this referral is there. So continue. <laughs> yeah. So just a bit over half of the caregivers said that the fire department was needed to put out a fire. So yeah, really these aren't necessarily small little accidents. Some of these are quite significant mm. fires. Mm, mm, mm. Again, hence the referral to this program. So why are they doing it? According to this study, the biggest motive which was reported by almost 70% of the caregivers who answered this question, the biggest motive for setting the fire was curiosity. Mm. So most of the time, these caregivers did not believe that their child actually intended to start a fire. It was curiosity. Mm -hmm. The next most frequent motives were antisocial behaviour, anger, boredom, attention-seeking, But these were all reported by less than a quarter of the caregivers. So really curiosity was the main factor, according to these caregivers. And the authors note that this fits with other research in the field, that curiosity is a really strong factor and more so than, you know, malice. Yes. Now, I'll just point out that not all 57 caregivers were always included in each of the results. There is some missing data, so just keep that in mind as well as the sample size, which is, you know, quite small already at 57. And sometimes it was a little bit smaller than that. 
And also I think there is some potential for bias because it's the caregiver's thoughts on their child's intentions. And it's it's hard for anyone to really comment on the intentions of someone else. Yeah, especially you very young children. Yeah, like two to yeah. six. I mean, it may not even be clear for the very young child the intention. Yeah, so it's just something to keep in mind. Caregivers' reports are obviously really valuable. It's just something to think about. Um, yeah, that's right. Now, in the study, the researchers also looked at whether there were differences between the kids who set five or more fires compared with the kids who set four or fewer fires. So setting five or more fires is when fire setting behaviour is considered pathological. Right, okay. And they found that kids who had an accomplice were more likely to set more fires than kids who didn't have an accomplice. And kids who were exposed to images and or videos of fires being set were more likely to have set more fires. And they found this to be quite a strong association. It is. Mm. So it's not a true experiment, of course. We can't say that watching fire setting videos makes kids set fires. This is a correlation. We can't really talk about causation with a study like this. You know, are the kids seeking out these media intentionally or have they found them accidentally? You know, it's hard to say. Yeah, good point. And also remember that this study was done over 10 years ago. So think about the situation now with the explosion of digital media and yeah, that's what, what I was kids just thinking. are potentially able to access now. Yes. Whether accidentally or, you know, deliberately. Yeah, that's right. So when it came to the children's mental health, most, around 64% of the caregivers reported clinically relevant externalising symptoms, which is fancy psych speak for things like being aggressive, physically acting out, lying, shouting, so getting Mm. things out as opposed to internalising symptoms, which would be things like depression and anxiety. Oh, okay, yep. And those with these externalising symptoms were more likely to set more fires. And it seems that many of these kids also were living in quite challenging home environments and experiencing Mm. things like domestic violence, neglect, abuse Mm -hmm. and other childhood traumas, as well as there sometimes being mental health problems among the caregivers. Mm -hmm. So all of these things were reported for more than half of the children in this study. So not all were experiencing these things in the home, but it certainly wasn't uncommon in this Mm -hmm, sample of of kids and their caregivers. Something that I found really interesting was that almost 90% of the caregivers were smokers. So I know, I'm just thinking about what this means potentially for the kids who were regularly probably witnessing use of lighters or matches and having access to these. Yeah, for sure. And the last thing that I will talk about in the study was that the children who were disciplined or punished for their fire-setting behaviour were more likely to start more fires. Again, Mm. this is a correlation. We don't know that punishing your child for setting fires makes the situation worse. Mm. It may just be that these children continue to start fires despite being disciplined, such as their curiosity, you know, and heightened desire to do so. Okay. So we don't really know, but it's an interesting finding, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. They're the major findings from this study, I think, and it gives a bit of a snapshot into the characteristics of kids and their caregivers who are, you know, kids who have been setting fires from an early age. And as the authors say, future research should look more into the trajectory of fire setting behaviour from this early age and then into adulthood. That's exactly what I was just about to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And of course, what are effective strategies to prevent 
fire setting in this age group? Well, yeah. So on that, the arson prevention program, do the authors go into what that involves and whether it is effective? No, there's not a lot of detail on that, but I actually am aware of in our home state of Queensland. Yes. So this is through Mel, creative director who works in the fire and emergency services. In Queensland, there is a program here called Fight Fire Fascination. Oh, really? It is available Yeah, so it's available for adolescents and kids as young as three. And according to the website, it is quite successful. Most children who do the program cease unsafe fire involvement. Oh, fantastic. I would say that there's, Queensland won't be the only place. I would say that there's programs like this in lots of areas. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so we'll put a link up to that one at least. Yeah, I'm very interested to read about that. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, you know, we're drawn to fire as humans. Yes. But we need to just temper that, especially at younger ages, and make sure that that remains a healthy fascination and appreciation for fire and doesn't sort of become a danger. Yeah, that's right. I do remember when my nephew, your son, when he turned two, his birthday party. Do you remember this? We had the, I think it was cupcakes and, you know, singing happy birthday lit up the cupcake and his eyes just, wow, what is that? And he reached out to touch the flame and everyone in unison at the party just goes, no. No. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I remember that. Yes. So yeah, kids certainly drawn to fire as are we. Of course. Now, Janine is taking us away from humans. Yes. I'm so fascinated about what you're going to tell us, Janine, so so please take it away. Yeah, so this has been in the list of stuff I wanted to look into since before we even had the idea of doing the podcast. Oh. This has been, yeah, this has been something on my radar for a long time, so I'm very excited. As soon as we were discussing talking about fire, I'm like, oh, well, I know what I'm talking about. So you've kept Um, this in your pocket for, what, two years? Well, the paper's actually from 2017 which kind of freaked me out because I didn't realise it was that long ago. But, yeah, this paper is by Mark Bonta and colleagues. It was published in the Journal of Ethnobiology and it's just fascinating. So we need to go through some important background before we get into the amazingness of what these birds are doing. Right. The paper opens with a discussion about fire ecology in Australia. So I thought I should definitely give a bit of background into that. So fires are certainly a natural occurrence in many parts of Australia in that there is good evidence for how Australia's plants and animals have evolved alongside the continent's fire regime. Some plants, for example, will need either direct heat from a fire or the presence of smoke for seeds to be released from seed pods or for the seeds in the ground to germinate. This is also the case in other parts of the world where fires are relatively common, of course, But of course, fire is also a highly dangerous event and causes much destruction to plants and animals, including humans and human property. So although it is certainly contentious, there is an argument that we need some degree of fire management. But exactly what this looks like is, of course, complicated and contentious. Today in Australia, many fire-prone regions engage in some sort of planned burning regime where the idea is to reduce the fuel load That is the amount of leaf litter, twigs, sticks and other materials in the environment that would be available for a fire to burn. So we're trying to lessen the frequency and severity of future fires. So these hazard reduction burns are sometimes called controlled burns or prescription burns. And everyone who lives in Brisbane, for example, is 
pretty familiar with this. Relatively regularly, we will know there's some controlled burning going on. I live quite close to a major bushland and this is just a normal part of the year, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, traditional Indigenous owners participate in what is known as fire stick farming, where they intentionally light fires and end up creating mosaic landscapes because this encourages the growth of certain grasses, which in turn attracts vital food sources such as kangaroo and emu. And indeed, the authors discuss the critical importance of learning from Indigenous ecological knowledge around fire management. This is so important for answering questions like when, where and how to burn and also when not to burn. Mm. Although collaboration with traditional landowners around fire management has become more common over time, the authors certainly emphasise that full and respectful collaboration remains elusive. And I would just add that collaborating with the traditional owners of all lands would be a critical consideration for all environmental management. And let's just be real here. Colonisation and forced removal of Indigenous peoples has had a profound and I would argue mostly negative impact on Australia's ecosystems and biodiversity in general. Yeah. But what this paper is specifically about is the potential for intentional fire-spreading behaviour in birds. Are you convinced, Alina? (laughs) (laughs) I'm super fascinated. Let me enlighten you. Okay, so in Northern Australia, so we're talking about Northern Territory, Western Australia and Queensland, there have been historical accounts of apparent intentional fire spreading behaviour by raptors. Now, this is in three different species in particular, the black kite, the whistling kite and the brown falcon. And in fact, in this part of Australia, there is a generic term for these three species of raptors, the firehawks. Oh. These raptors are all birds of prey and they are known to eat animals that are fleeing from active fires in addition to eating charred remains of animals that have died in fires. Kite raptors are known to gather in their hundreds during fires and birds of prey in other continents do this too. And the authors mention examples in Africa, Papua New Guinea, the USA and Brazil. But... Birds gathering by a fire to capitalise on the abundance of potential food is one thing. Intentionally picking up a burning, smouldering stick using their beak or talons and intentionally dropping it in a distant area to start a new fire. Now, that is something very different indeed. Yes, that is something very different. And that is exactly what these accounts are suggesting. So in this paper, the authors want to establish the nature of these reports in these raptors in northern Australia. What is the extent of knowledge of this behaviour? And can we try and establish whether it is intentional? Because, of course, it could just be accidental. That was my initial thought when you mentioned that your paper was was around this topic. Of course. I thought. Of course. Okay. Yes. We're scientists. We, We have to think this way. Okay, so the research involved examination of written accounts. This included both scholarly research papers, so the primary scientific literature, and also popular sources, so it could have included things like newspapers and books. The authors also conducted interviews with credible witnesses. They put the call out via online blogs and other means to try and find people that may have observed this sort of behaviour in these birds. They also asked for photos and videos if anyone happened to have anything, but unfortunately they didn't receive anything. So they had to rely on people's accounts of seeing this sort of behaviour. Very interestingly, during the study, two of the authors of the paper actually observed this behaviour firsthand, which I'll talk about soon. Credible witnesses included people with lots of experience at active firefronts, so this included land managers and also firefighters. Witnesses were deemed not credible if the description they gave was vague 
or if these people failed to respond to the researchers after some initial contact. They were also deemed Mm -hmm. not credible if they were providing a second-hand observation. That is, one person was describing what someone else had told them. Fair enough. Yep. So the researchers conducted open-ended interviews with the credible witnesses and they did this in person over the phone or via email and they specifically asked them exactly what they remembered seeing what the conditions were, and did they think that the fire spreading by the birds was intentional? Okay. So what did they find? The written accounts of this behaviour were found to be quite credible, and anyone interested can go and have a look at this paper. They provide all of the detail around what they found, where they found it. I'm pretty satisfied with it, to be honest. They found that 12 independent Aboriginal community groups provided evidence for the behaviour. Six additional credible witnesses provided strong evidence during interviews and specifically that they believe it to be intentional. And finally, as I mentioned before, first-hand observations were made by two of the authors themselves during the study period. Just the icing on the cake, really. Yeah, so they actually saw the birds doing it. They did. And in a way that made them think this was deliberate. That's right. So I've just got some quotes from the paper that I think will... So cool! I know. I think this is this is going to really convince anyone who's still not sure. All right, so first I'm going to go to one of those um, written accounts that came from one of the popular sources. So this is from Lockwood's 1963 book, I, the Aboriginal, which is a popular ghost-written autobiography of the Alawa man Waipal Danya. Here is the quote. The kite hawks, we call them firehawks, are inventive hunters. Much of their natural food is caught and eaten on the wing, especially around the perimeters of bushfires where they swoop on fleeing grasshoppers. Mm. Firehawks often confused us in welcoming visitors to our tribal lands by deliberately setting fire to grass and bushland to assist their scavenging. I have seen a hawk pick up a smouldering stick in its claws and drop it in a fresh patch of dry grass half a mile away then wait with its mates for the mass exodus of the scorched and frightened rodents and reptiles. No! When that area was burnt, when that area was burnt out, the process was repeated elsewhere, and we call these fires Jaralan. Wow! So they had a specific name for this type of fire that was set by these birds. Mm -hmm. How cool is that? It's just something that has become... Normative. That's right. So I've got another one. Now, this is actually one of the accounts from one of the authors, as I mentioned. Another fire-spreading encounter occurred at the Ranger Uranium Mine near Kakadu, Northern Territory, where Yusun, and Yusun is the author, was a firefighter. One afternoon, while he was ensuring that a grass fire did not leap across a highway, he observed fire foraging activities of both whistling and black kites. Though the fire burned itself out, Yusin was alerted to a new blaze on the unburnt side of the road. He drove over and put it out, noting a whistling kite flying about 20 metres in front of him with a smoking stick in its talons. Oh! It, dropped, it dropped the stick and smoke began to curl from the dry grass, starting a spot fire that had to be immediately extinguished. In all, he put out seven fires, all caused by the kites. Oh, my On that gosh. occasion... <laughs> on that occasion, approximately 25 kites were foraging at the edge of the dying fire, but only two were adept at transporting smoking sticks. Wow. It's just so cool. I don't really it's have so words cool. For it's this. amazing it's just that so cool. he saw the kite with the smouldering stick in its talons. Yeah. It's just caught <laughs> just drop it in the and act. Then, oh, there's another fire I need to put out. <laughs> 
And there's two of them doing it and the rest are sort of just coming along to the hanging party. Around. Yeah, hanging around, waiting around, <laughs> waiting around for the feast. <laughs> it's so fascinating. So when so the cool. first quote was from, that came from a story in the 60s and this more recent one from the author, when did that happen? Uh, seems like it was 2003 or 2004. Okay. Yeah. And oh, no, it's amazing. That first, one, that first book was from 1963, but the, the account may have been from a lot earlier. I'm not sure. That's when that book was published, mm. yeah. Well, the, so, the authors know, have obviously done a lot of background checking of this and they're convinced that it's credible and it seems yes, credible. Yes. They've got multiple yes. accounts from multiple sources that they consider yes. trustworthy. They have multiple accounts over time and, yes. as you said, first-hand accounts from the authors themselves. Yes. I mean, yeah, now I'm I not think that surprised the, because... I think the paper provides pretty compelling evidence. I would argue that I am convinced that this is intentional behaviour. Look at what other birds can do. Look at what crows do, how intelligent they are, you know? Well, that's right. Yes, that's definitely true. And so the authors do point out that they do plan a future collaborative publication with Aboriginal authors that would greatly deepen and broaden what they present in this article. But I had a look and I couldn't see any evidence that that has happened yet, but I would be really interested to read that. They, as I mentioned, they weren't able to get videos or photos and that would be really the... That would really seal the deal, yeah? But, you know, obviously there's a barrier to that because who who's sort of sitting around waiting to take photos and videos when there's an active fire front? It's not really front of mind, is it? You're probably- no, you don't really want to set up and a deliberate experiment where you start a fire and see if the birds are going to make it spread. Well, they do actually say that it would be difficult to test this experimentally, but some sort of controlled simulation in the wild where... Yeah. That they do mention that that is in the works, but, again, I didn't see any evidence of that, but that would be pretty interesting, but obviously... Oh, you have to keep on top of this, follow this up Imagine and see what happens. Imagine the ethics approval for that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> It's really hard to get ethics approval studies and so it should be, but yeah, I would really like to read well, that Well, yeah, and it's potentially, it's already a dangerous situation, particularly <laughs> in somewhere like Australia with our bushfire <laughs> risk currently. That's right. But, yeah, so, you know, they do mention that it would be wonderful to equip particularly Indigenous rangers with equipment so that they could potentially record this behaviour um, if they were to to see it. Yeah, for sure. And of course, you know, my background, evolution and genetics, the evolution of this sort of behaviour is certainly interesting to me. Has it evolved through natural selection or perhaps it could be an example of cultural evolution, which essentially means it's a learned behaviour that is observed among the birds and they're passing it on. They're learning it during their lifetime. We don't know. But what I do know is that the discovery of this in some birds, has blown my tiny mind. <laughs> That's what I know. <laughs> I'm so it's excited so to cool. have shared it with you. <laughs> yeah, it seems quite credible that it is an intentional behaviour, but I guess to some extent it doesn't really matter because... One of the things that's really important from a study like this is that we just need to know, need to understand that this is one potential way that fires spread. You know, it's not yes, just exactly. necessarily embers blowing in the wind. This is another way that fires might spread. So whether it's deliberate or not, it's just mm. something to be aware of, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, it could explain why sometimes fires that have been extinguished seem to ignite in new areas. So, yes, of course, as you mentioned, it could be embers being blown by the wind, but it could be the birds. It could so be the birds. So it's very important that people <laughs> in these regions are aware of this and are vigilant to it because they could be starting them anytime, anyplace. Exactly. It could be the firehawks. It could be the firehawks. That's right. Oh, I love them. 
<laughs> I know. I just love birds. Obviously, listeners will remember that uh, I studied the satin bowerbirds as part of my previous research. Birds are just fascinating. Yes, if you haven't listened to the bowerbird episode, that's all about Janine's actual research. That's right. Yes. So do have a listen. It's great stuff. Oh, that was fascinating, Janine. I, first of all, I don't think we've ever done two papers that were more different in the one episode. Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> I know. We were discussing know. like, how is this going to come together? I don't <laughs> know like, how I'm we're... not changing my mind. That yes. is what I'm talking about. <laughs> what we can take from both of them to have one overall message, I'm not sure, but I love the <laughs> juxtaposition. I mean, you can say that we've learned that kids are mostly starting fires out of curiosity. Raptors mm. are doing it to get food. <laughs> That's right. I think that's what we can say. <laughs> that's that's your take-home message, listeners. <laughs> that's right. But, you know, if it is being passed on through cultural evolution in the birds, it could have started through curiosity. It's possible. A sure. bird could have just been like, ooh, what happens when I do this? Ooh, I can eat some food. And others are observing this going, ooh, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> that's right. That's quite plausible. That's right, yes. Exactly. Very teasing out whether this is... Um, whether there's a genetic basis for this or if it's just being learned, that's very hard to do. But that would I was um, just thinking that how do you design exactly an experiment where, my brain goes, where you where you try and tease that out? That could be interesting. Janine, you must stay on top of this line of research and update us on the raptors. Okay. Great stuff. Okay, people, so it's now time again for Inner Square and we do have some actual Inner Square content for you. There's been <laughs> there's been some random stuff of late. <laughs> I don't oh, have I a kitchen renovation that? update for you or keep you posted, but we're doing some <laughs> genuine Inner Square. So I don't know who yeah, should can go I just, first, Can Janine? I just jump in? No, hang on. Uh, I just want to jump in that on uh, my inclusion of inner dumbass in the last episode. So much love for that. A lot of people really related to the dumbassery of me. Yeah. So I was really, I wasn't sure how that was going to go down. Like, would that bring down the tone of the podcast? Would that? People loved it. Well, why not? So yeah, share share your inner square moments. We all and have your them. Your inner dumbass moments. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we all have them. We do. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it's just funny. <laughs> yeah, so we'll we'll have right. some more of those for you, but for today it's some rigid ditch in a square. So Janine, who's going first? <laughs> yes, yes I would like to go first as mine leads on very nicely from the study that I covered because... Oh, mine has nothing to do with birds or fires. So. Okay. Okay, you go. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so I spotted this in an article by The Conversation earlier this year. Now, researchers at the University of Sunshine Coast, so again, this is in our own state of Queensland and Australia, they were doing a study on Australian magpies, another very intelligent group of birds. They wanted to track the movements and interactions of these birds, so they they actually invented a new kind of tracking device and they attached this to five magpies and they described them as being like little backpacks. They weighed less than one gram, so not too intrusive. Mm -hmm. Now, so they've attached it to these five birds and cool, we're going to observe some interesting stuff. But what they ended up seeing was very unexpected indeed. What happened was the magpies helped each other remove the tracking devices. (laughs) 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 And they note that less than 10 minutes after fitting the final tracker, they witnessed an adult female without a tracker working with her bill to try and remove the harness off a younger bird. And the female (laughs) actually snapped the harness at the only weak point, which led to it being released. (laughs) 
<laughs> and within hours of fitting the trackers to all five birds, most of them had been removed and by day three, even the dominant male's tracker was gone. They don't know if it was that one female helping everyone or if lots of birds were getting involved in this behaviour. Yeah. But, you know, clearly what we are seeing here is evidence of problem solving and also cooperation. Yeah, absolutely. That is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Well, she and could be teaching the others how to remove them from their mates. Yeah. Well, they're, they're having a thought of there's a thing on my mate and I don't want it there or the mate doesn't want it there, so I'm going to help them out. It's yeah. amazing. It is. It's so good. <laughs> Magpies are great. I'm, I'm quite scared magpies. of them because I've been swooped that many times, but I do like yes. them. They're so good. I love them. They're so cool. And, well, look, when I worked on the satin birds. A colleague did the bird banding. So we had bands on them to help with identification. Now, these are just little rings they that were go around their legs. They were little bands around their leg, yeah. Yeah. So you need to have um, a lot of training to be allowed to do that. I wasn't at that point. But, yeah, so a colleague did that and we were able to identify those birds to individuals, which was really important when we're trying to work out who's stealing from who, right? Yeah. But, yeah, they, were, they weren't trying to get them off each other. But I, I guess maybe it's not as intrusive as a backpack. Yeah, and, backpack. Um, bowerbirds are not, also not as um, communal. They're quite solitary. Yes, <laughs> that's <laughs> Just care right. about their bachelor pad. The thing on your back would really be quite annoying. That would impede yeah, your sense of freedom. and. But, you know, it's one thing to go, I want this off my back. It's another to help someone else get it off their back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's very interesting. That's a higher level of intelligence, isn't it? That's right, yes. So, yeah, just more evidence. I thought I would share in this inner square of how intelligent some birds can be. And it's also just really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I just put myself in the shoes of the authors. As someone having done bird research before, that I would have been like, this is equal parts fascinating, funny and infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> but you're also proud of them. Oh, good on you, that's little right. buddy. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, that's my inner square. Oh, well in done. The theme of bird intelligence and just birds are awesome. Yeah, that's great. That's just Very a fact. much enjoyed that. Well, my inner square is also exceptionally nerdy. So nice. probably a departure from my usual inner square, which are just kind of silly. <laughs> um, mine is about context-specific memory, Janine. Ooh. Ooh. Now, you might have heard Actually, this term. Yes, I have recently heard this. Yes. Oh, this is interesting. Well, uh, it will become clear what I'm talking about as I tell the story. So, okay. I don't know about you, Janine, but <laughs> while I am in the shower, <laughs> I, I often do a lot of brainstorming and or mental life admin. <laughs> You just okay. have a lot of ideas and stuff comes to you in the shower. This is I, a thing. I never stop ruminating. Oh, sure. <laughs> it's always happening no matter what I'm well, doing. Well, this is a thing that ideas and like flow state can come to people in the shower. So that's a thing. Okay. I'm not going to get into that here. We can do that another time. No tangents. Okay. <laughs> but on this occasion in the shower, I was getting ready to leave for a conference the next day. I was flying into state mm -hmm. and now there were... Oh, yeah, this is recent. Okay. Yes, there were three things that sprang to my mind in the shower that I needed to do <laughs> yeah. beforehand. So okay. obviously I'm in the shower. I can't write them down. So no. just, that's okay. I'll, I'll hold them in my mind and when I get out of the yes. shower, I'll write them down. Yes. Of course, by the time I get out of the shower, I'm distracted by something else and I don't write them down. <laughs> now, no. later that night I remember, oh, there were the three <laughs> things I had to do. I could recall two of them. I could not recall the third. Okay. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go into the bathroom 
and I think it will come <laughs> to me in that space. Okay. Unfortunately, it did not. Mm-hmm. But I could feel I was getting warmer. So <laughs> it was better, but it wasn't quite close enough to replicating okay. what I was doing when I made the mental <laughs> list. So I just I just did it. I went all in. I stood in the shower facing the taps and waited. And the list appeared in my mind, all three items, one, two, three, (laughs) as they had come to me. And all I had to do was stand in the shower fully clothed at around 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) And that's an example of context-specific memory where accessing the memory is sometimes contingent on being back in that same context that you were in when the memory was made. This happens to me when I'll go... I'm going from one room to another to get something. Yes. And then by the time I've got to the room, I'm like, hang on, what was I doing again? Exactly. Hang on, I'll just go back where I was. Oh, yeah, that's right. I was trying to get the scissors or whatever. Exactly. And okay. You yes. don't always need to replicate it exactly. I didn't need to, thankfully, I didn't need to turn on the taps and have another shower. <laughs> I remember Mel was just going, what are you doing? I'm standing in the shower fully clothed. Um, I said, obviously, I'm trying to remember something. <laughs> Trying to remember the three things. Obviously, that's what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and it worked. And it's the same thing with, have you, you, you would have had the experience where you smell something and it takes you back to some, yeah. whatever, oh, yeah. something from childhood yeah, or something yeah, from yeah. a few years ago because it's just sure. helping to access that memory. So, yes, I'm very, I was just so happy that the third thing came to me because well, it was all good. important. Are you going to share what these things were? <laughs> oh, they weren't anything interesting. You know, it's like... Okay. Pack my favourite warm socks, you know. Make sure you've got your ukulele. No, I don't remember. Oh, that's funny. I, um, I on ukuleles, I've been really enjoying Amanda Palmer's ukulele anthem of late. People should get into that. It's very, very, it's very funny. My version or her version? Her version. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. It's a great song. It has a great message. Did you take your ukulele to the conference? No, I took my <laughs> ukulele on my girls' weekend away. I was going to say, you did take it to the campfire. Yes, and I, very did, nice. I did play oh, look, it. We've come full circle. Yeah, It is related <laughs> to it. <laughs> ukulele. Oh, Have a listen good. to that song. Basically, the message is all problems in life can be solved by if you just start playing the ukulele. Yeah, and <laughs> you don't have to play it well. You just have to have a crack. No. Just have a go. I'm going to get one. Do it. The only cost $19.95. That isn't lots of money. That's a line from the song. (laughs) All right. So I think we've come full circle and we should wrap this episode up. Absolutely. I wanted to say a massive thanks to Rachel in Perth because she bought us an absolute crap load of coffees via our Kofi page. So thank you to Rachel. Thank that you, was Rachel. Very generous. Yes. Amazing. Alina, have you also seen? I just have to read this out. This was a review we received on Apple by iHeart Podcast 22. So thank you, whoever you are out there. Love the dynamics between Janine and Alina as they bring a clever format to science communication. I always learn things and have a laugh. Listening to your podcast is definitely type one fun. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Oh, that's that great. is a reference to the Tourette's syndrome episode in a square. If anyone doesn't know what that means, that's but this is great. a true square. This has that's come from a clearly true a. Um, <laughs> that's clearly a, a loyal listener who's listened to that's a few right. episodes, and they also gave five stars. So yeah, if anyone 
any squares out there are listening, we would love to have you review and rate. It helps more people find the podcast and get a bit of a sense of what it's all about. So yeah, thank you. I Heart Podcast 22 and Rachel. All right, shall we wrap this up? I've got the Prodigy song stuck in my head, Firestarter. I oh, have yeah. that in my head all Great day song. long. I'm going to put that on yeah, afterwards. Same. Nice. Get into some Prodigy. Oh, that yeah, reminds me. Get into me. some Prodigy, get into some Amanda Palmer. Yeah, that reminds me, listeners, we've mentioned this before, but just a reminder that we created a Sister Doctor Squared playlist on Spotify that is full of songs oh, that yeah. in we some way reference that in some way reference anything that we've talked about on this podcast. I'm adding those songs right now. Yes, you can add <laughs> Firestarter by the Prodigy. Great song. I am, I am so doing it. So they're just good songs. They they have to just be good oh, songs as well as being yeah. relevant. Yeah, um, some right. of them are probably more just good songs than being relevant to anything to do with our podcast. <laughs> So it's called the I Inner find Square. ways to get good songs in there. Yeah, there's always a vague connection there. And that's a fun game for you. Listen to songs. Some will be quite obvious, you know, like, that's, for example, Firestarter. There's also a song called Tourette's by Nirvana on there. Some will be quite oh, obvious. Great song. Some are a little bit abstract and vague. If you can figure it out, you're doing really well. So it's called the Inner Square Playlist on Spotify. I have just added those songs literally right now. Thank you, Done. Playlist Master. This is one of my jobs in in this operation <laughs> is managing the playlist. <laughs> yeah, and you do a wonderful job. I do. Okay, thanks for joining us. Details of everything we've talked about will be available on our website. Please follow along on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We'd love to connect with you. And if you like listening to Sister Doctor Squared, as always, please rate and review us and please feel free to buy us a coffee, i.e. send us a small donation via our Ko-fi page. The link for that is on the Support Us page of the website. And thanks for listening. Thanks, Squares. See you next time. Bye.